Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we will round out our series of recent conversations on investing in China by examining the notable risks associated and what investors really need to be mindful of when considering an allocation into Chinese assets. Joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Mike Gord, Investment Associate Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Mike, good morning to you. Great to be with you as always, and looking forward to diving into this topic with you today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Good morning as well. Always happy to hop on. Absolutely. So, uh, Mike, just some context for our listeners. Now, over the past couple of weeks, I have been having conversations with your colleagues about the Chief Investment Office's recent Investing in China publication, and those conversations have consisted of deep dives into the mechanics of the Chinese equity and bond markets, along with the portfolio considerations to be mindful of, uh, meaning the case for why investors should take notice and how to think about participating in an allocation into Chinese assets. Mike, I know we will be talking about the risks today. I know that there are four notable risks that come with investing in China, as identified by the Chief Investment Office. And during our time together today, you will break out each one and take a deep dive for our listeners and clients. But uh, one of those risks, Mike, being the regulatory environment and the scope of corporate governance. So can you expand on this consideration a bit for us? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you know, the regulatory backdrop for Chinese markets, both, you know, equities and, and debt markets has evolved pretty dramatically over the last 50 years. Uh, you know, the country has shifted away from being, you know, mostly dominated by large state-owned enterprises to a much more free market environment. Um, you know, antitrust is a key area where regulations are constantly evolving. Uh, relative to other nations, China has been relatively light touch in terms of antitrust and regulations, especially on the tech sector. Uh, so this has actually allowed their, the Chinese internet companies to innovate and monetize faster than their global peers. Um, you know, in November though, like I said, this is constantly evolving. And just in November, regulators released proposed, proposed guidance for the internet space for the first time. Uh, you know, this is to try to limit monopolies, create a more level playing field. So it suggests that the regulatory environment towards these Internet platforms may be tougher than in the past. Um, but beyond antitrust, uh, the other thing that has shown some promise in, in terms of drastic change has been the domestic accounting standards. Uh, over the past years, the onshore, you know, accounting standards have substantially converged towards, you know, the international IFRS, IFRS standards. Uh, and for the most part, the firms that are listed offshore already produce IFRS or U.S. GAAP compliant financial statements. Um, and that, you know, when they are doing so, their corporate governance models are, you know, more aligned with international standards. That being said, for the onshore companies, the quality of disclosures and, and you know, the type of corporate governance varies widely. So any international investor that's going to smoke it, that's going to mostly focus on those onshore companies, uh, you know, you really want to make sure that you're investing in those firms with high quality corporate governance. 
So that, that's kind of a, a quick and dirty regulatory and corporate governance landscape overview. Thank you for that, Mike. Appreciate it. Now, another risk element to be mindful of, and one that has even made some headlines in recent time, uh, that being the access or lack thereof that Chinese firms have to U.S. exchanges, along with the prospects for member entities to be delisted from exchanges. So what can you share with us there, Mike? Yeah, this has definitely been grabbing headlines in recent months. Um, you know, the basis for some of these actions, there are kind of, I'll say, two, one, one executive order and one piece of legislation in the U.S. So the executive order was Executive Order 13959. Uh, that was issued back in November of 2020. And then the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which was passed in December. So very recent. Um, the executive order restricts trading in Chinese companies that the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, deems to be related to the Chinese military. Uh, so this is uh, roughly about 2% of the MSCI China market cap. It's about 35 companies. Uh, and most of the trading in these securities uh, occurs in Hong Kong and mainland China. So, you know, forced by U.S. investors would have a minimal impact on trading volumes, but it's something to be aware of. Uh, probably a, a larger impact could come from the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. Uh, so this stipulates that if an independent auditor, you know, akin to a PCAOB uh, auditor, is unable to inspect a foreign firm's financial statements over a three-year period, the U.S. SEC must delist the company. Now, currently, there are 220 or so U.S.-listed Chinese companies, uh, accounting for roughly of 30 to 33 percent of the MSCI China market cap. But I will say that the largest firms there are already dual-listed in Hong Kong. Uh, that basically mitigates that delisting risk. So roughly 10 percent of the MSCI China market cap is going to have these three years to comply with this new requirement. Uh, or alternatively, they can find different listing venues or go private. So that, that's, that's the, uh, the skinny on the U.S. delisting risk. It sounds like there's quite a few complexities involved there. So helpful to have heard that breakdown. So appreciate that. I thought maybe we could also spend a few moments touching on the dynamics of the Chinese debt markets. Now, this not necessarily a risk that is new, yet is a risk that does indeed warrant consideration in light of the COVID-19 pandemic period we have been living through. So, Mike, what do we need to be mindful of here? Yeah, Dan, and that, that's exactly right. This is a risk that has existed for some time. And, you know, the, the Chinese government has previously taken steps towards deleveraging their economy. Um, but, you know, with the pandemic that that had to, you know, they had to hit the brakes there for a little bit. So I'll, I'll say over the last 10 years or so, the Chinese total debt to GDP ratio has increased by over 100 percent. So it, it's pretty substantial, currently around 290-ish percent in terms of debt to GDP ratio. Uh, so even, even with that, we think a near-term debt crisis is very unlikely for a few reasons. First, uh, China has a large current account surplus, large foreign reserves, and a high savings rate domestically. And beyond that, nearly all of this Chinese debt is domestic and funded by domestic savings. So, you know, those dynamics, you know, they make us more comfortable with that high debt to GDP ratio. Um, so, like we said, you know, the pandemic 
it's going to mess mess with their deleveraging plans. So the debt to GDP ratio increased about 10% in 2020, you know, relatively small in the global context when you when you look at comparable nations, just given how successful China had actually been at controlling the spread of the pandemic. Um, but we expect them to, you know, kind of turn back towards deleveraging uh, starting this year. And I, we expect that that debt to GDP ratio will stabilize uh, at 294% by the end of 2021. Now, the one other concern with Chinese debt markets, uh, it comes from the actual instruments themselves. So a lot of Chinese debt, you know, it has a, there's a lack of credit differentiation. So, you know, you're not getting a higher yield for a riskier security or at least that has been the case in the past. And there are also some perceived implicit guarantees in many financial products. Uh, so regulations that have been introduced since 2018 have aims to break those and, and therefore improve capital allocation efficiency. Uh, so it has resulted in better credit differentiation and rising default rates. Uh, so we think that China can manage this, this whole process without a credit crisis or a hard landing, but for investors in these debt securities, it's very important for them to actively manage their credit risks. Thank you, Mike, for the considerations there and speaking to the dynamics of the Chinese debt market. So, Mike, can you now provide us with some color on demographic trends within China and the implications of these trends to future economic growth? Yeah. So according to the latest UN forecast, China's total population is set to grow until about 2030 then plateau for a decade or two, and then start shrinking. Uh, so a bit behind the curve and, you know, relative to more developed nations. But if we actually dig below the surface into the population trend, there is a, there is a worrying trend. And that is in terms of the share of the working age population. So the World Bank describes that as ages 15 to 64. And so that level has fallen to just above 70% of its total population. From, from a high of around 76%. Um, but this is the lowest level since 2003, so in 18 years. Uh, and it's set to continue shrinking. So this is going to be a challenge for potential growth in the future as there are fewer workers to support you know, a, a larger elderly population. Uh, so while that is concerning, uh, we think that one key differentiating factor to, that will benefit China is automation. Uh, so this is going to help mitigate a lot of those risks by boosting productivity. Um, and China already has, you know, more um, industrial robotics setups uh, than any other country in the world by a large, large margin. Uh, other things that they can do uh, are changes to increase the retirement age, relaxing birth policy. There are a bunch of political or social changes that can be implemented to avoid some of these more dire outcomes. Uh, and lastly, I'll say that this, this demographic challenge in China also comes with an investment opportunity because the country is shifting away from a manufacturing economy toward a more service-based one. So spending on health care, insurance, elderly care, recreation, these, these categories – the spending is going to rise significantly. So great opportunities for investment there. Mike, thank you for the insights into demographic trends. And I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together today, but wanted to ask Mike, any final thoughts, takeaways you would like to share with us along with any guidance for our clients specifically listening in if they would like to learn more about this topic? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think the first 
thing I want to say is these these risks are very fluid. They're very dynamic. They are going to you're going to continue to see news headlines about it. Take yesterday as an example. You know, the U.S. Um, in coordination with the EU, Canada, and the UK, imposed sanctions on some Chinese individuals, and then China retaliated with sanctions on individuals. So, you know, we're going to see a lot of this type of tit for tat. Um, I guess, you know, action between, you know, the U.S., the U.S. allies and China as, as these countries continue to grow and expand their influence. Uh, so for those clients and advisors listening, I will just reiterate that the name of the report is Investing in China, Opportunities for Global Investors. There is also a companion piece that gives implementation recommendations for those interested in uh, looking to add Chinese assets to their portfolios. Uh, this is uh, one of a few different uh, on-air podcasts that we've done, and we also have a blog series out as well. So lots of content out there for those interested in investing in China. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you again for joining us today and for highlighting these important risks. As with any form of investing comes risk, so it's very helpful to know what to be mindful of in this context. But really appreciate the time and insight provided today, Mike. Thank you again. Yeah, happy to join, Dan. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. And again, today we have been joined by Mike Gord, Investment Associate Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Uh, That includes the blog that Mike has been making reference to during our conversation today as part of the Investing in China blog series, Understanding the Risks. So for clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of that blog or any of the blogs in the series directly or if you have any follow-up questions about these topics. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.